Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 25, Hysteria. Before we get started, I wanted to warn you that in this episode, you will hear details about animal cruelty, which might be difficult for some listeners, so discretion is advised. The Dark Triad is an idea that gained momentum after researcher and psychiatrist J.M. McDonald published a controversial review in 1963 based on earlier studies that suggested a link between three signs that could indicate that someone will grow up to be a serial killer. Number one, being cruel or abusive to animals, especially pets. Number two, setting fires. And number three, bedwetting used to call it the homicidal triad. That was supposedly a lot of these serial killers were bedwetters, and they set fires, and they were cruel to animals. That's retired FBI profiler Kenneth Lanning. You'll hear from him throughout the show because the reality is that many people can exhibit these types of behaviors in childhood and not grow up to be serial killers. Well, what does that mean? You set fires. When I was a kid growing up in New York City, we used to burn up old Christmas trees. Do I qualify as then if I had some medical problem that caused me to wet the bed and I like to take my magnifying glass and shine it on ants and burn them up. So do I meet those three things? Am I engaging in the homicidal triad and I'm likely to be a serial killer? So each of these things have to be looked at in a range rather than just giving a simple, a simplistic label to them. And when you lump too many things together, increases the odds that you're going to make an evaluation mistake, so you have to look at it. Anecdotally, it seems like true crime is so embedded in our culture that a lot of people know about these three signs, the dark triad. And so when a dozen cats were horribly killed in Washington state in the summer of 2018, a lot of people were worried that a serial killer in training was on the loose. And today I'm going to take you inside of that investigation which is as inexplicable today as it was back then. People are like, well, why aren't they doing anything? Why is nothing being done? This cat killer is going to, you know, create uh, more animals are going to be killed and then they're going to move on to humans. The summer of 2018 in Washington state was a scorcher. I know many people who live in, say, Arizona or Las Vegas are like, really? But trust me, it was a different kind of heat. It wasn't what we were used to. Let's face it, for a place known for rain and people who happily refer to themselves as pluviophiles, if you don't know what a pluviophile is, it's someone who not just likes the rain, but loves it and finds joy and peace of mind during rainy days. Obviously, Seattle is an ideal place to be for pluviophiles, but not the summer of 2018, where we hit a record of 11 days of over 90 degrees. Locals were just about ready to jump out of their skins. And here, everyone doesn't have AC. So, it's sticky and hot in western Washington, but there's something else going on. Our corner of the world felt like it was on fire. Devastating wildfires were raging out of control in Washington. 
By July 31st, Governor Jay Inslee had declared a state of emergency because the fires were burning across the state, existing firefighting resources were at capacity, and the climate was just hot and dry, and there were even lightning threats. The smoke was thick all around us, and it was unhealthy to breathe because it wasn't just wildfires from Washington, but also Oregon, California, and British Columbia. During that summer, on some days, Seattle's air quality was the worst in the world. It was strange and felt sort of apocalyptic as the wildfires and air quality made headlines every day. And I remember this time well because I was working at a news and talk radio station in Seattle and you just couldn't escape the smoke or the story or the heat. So we were constantly reporting on it. But there was another story that was gaining traction that summer. There was a predator who under the cover of darkness that summer was hunting cats the cat was just found that just the head on the post. Clearly a human put the head on the post. That's right. She said a cat's decapitated head was put on a post. And whoever put that cat's head on the post was just getting started. But we didn't know that at the time. And even though these cat mutilations were happening in a roughly 20-mile radius near the capital city of Olympia, which is about an hour from Seattle, these killings really struck a primal chord. One woman talks to Q13 after finding her beloved cat. Laid his body out for everyone to see. It's really disturbing. Neighbors went out in packs at night in organized citizen patrols, and a reward would be offered for the capture of the so-called cat killer. And as the weeks passed without an arrest and more killings, the reward continued to climb to more than $50,000 and a task force of detectives were assigned to the case. So, as I mentioned, I vividly remembered covering this case in the summer of 2018, but back then I wasn't hosting a true crime podcast. I just remember having this feeling that every day it felt like the story was ramping up, the reward was getting higher and higher, the hysteria, the fear, and the desperation to find out who was doing this. During that summer, the story made national headlines. In fact, at the height of the case, the New York Times had this headline, A serial cat killer is on the loose in Washington state. Underneath the headline, there was a picture of two grim-looking couples. Each couple held up a photo of their beloved cat. And in the background, there are these homemade signs. One says, CAT KILLER in all caps, and underneath it says, $20,000 REWARD. Another sign said REPORT in all caps, and then next to it there was a local number and a 1-800 number too, and then underneath that it said KEEP ANIMALS IN and OMINOUSLY BEWARE. Now, as I mentioned, the case had become serious enough for the authorities in Thurston County to set up a 10-person task force led by a former police officer with decades of experience investigating animal cases, and the team also included a homicide detective. Now, I remember trying to get an FBI profiler to talk with me about the case, you know, from a 30,000-foot view. Part of the reason that this story just got its hooks into so many people is that a lot of people believe that there was a serial killer in training out there, and that this was a prelude to murdering human beings. So I wasn't able to speak with an FBI profiler at the time, 
because it was an active investigation. But when I started hosting a true crime podcast, I never forgot about this case because it felt like the hysteria related to the case was becoming so heightened. And with the wildfires and the heat and they kept finding more cats who'd been killed horribly, let's face it, in a place known for having a lot of serial killers, it felt like it absolutely could be possible that there was a cat killer on the loose who could be looking for his next victim who was ready to take it to the next level and kill a human being. Which is why, five years later, I wanted to revisit the case with you today to better understand the roots of the hysteria with the help of a retired FBI profiler. But first, let's dig into the case. I spoke to Thurston County Sheriff's Detective Carrie Nastonsky, who back in 2018 was assigned to the case, and she explains how the mutilated remains of beloved cats started showing up around Olympia. She says that two cats were found mutilated in July, and in August, the number would continue to grow. And it wasn't just that the cats were being killed, but it's the way they were displayed. It was strange just because they were the same every time, or the same most of the time, where that it did look like they were splayed out and laid a specific way. So I think that's why people were so heightened, thinking that this was a, one human doing all of this. So we, you know, you're seeing these animals and your first thought is, well, yeah, of course, it's got to be the cat killer that did this. In early August, Ollie was found in the front yard and he would later be described as a fighter. And when they took a look at his claws, they wondered, was the perpetrator's DNA underneath? They took scrapings and sent this to the lab. Not too long after Ollie, a cat named Harley was found in the front yard. Here's Harley's owner speaking with Q13. Kind of like a serial killer, only a serial cat killer, and, and you don't know where he's going to strike next. Just sickles. On the 7th of August, another cat was found, followed by two on the 15th and another on the 17th. And the panic in the area is really beginning to ramp up. Even a Facebook page was dedicated to organizing citizen patrols, residents in these neighborhoods who are really getting freaked out. Then the sheriff's office had someone on staff, who was able to perform a necropsy, which is basically an autopsy for cats, and they confirmed everyone's worst nightmare. She also thought that it was human, so that added to, you know, human killing these people, or killing these animals. So that added to a little bit of the hysteria. The media attention that this case was getting was like throwing gas on a fire. People were just wondering who could do this, what cat was next, and what human was next. You can sense the panic in this Q13 piece where David Rose interviews a lead detective on the case. And after that, he looks into the camera as if speaking to the alleged cat killer. Those of you who follow me, you know that I will not rest. I will do everything I can to get these guys the leads they need to catch this killer. And a little message to the freak that's killing these cats. There is nowhere left to hide. They are coming for you. Start looking over your shoulder. It is only a matter of time. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
David Rose is an award-winning journalist and host of Washington's Most Wanted and The Spotlight, a weekly show on crime and public safety. And you can tell by the tone and tenor of his message to the cat killer, he was vocalizing what a lot of us were feeling. This person needed to be caught. Retired FBI profiler Ken Lanning helps give us some perspective. So when you're talking about pets, cats and dogs and people, and many people consider them to be members of their family and all the rest of that kind of stuff, people react very extremely. It's sort of the same thing. If you have a missing child case involving a 17-year-old prostitute out on the street, you don't, people re- don't react to that the same way they do a story of about some five-year-old girl playing jump rope in front of her house and somebody appears to abduct her. So cases, certain kinds of cases have certain emotional appeal. And uh, what I discovered in evaluating lots of different kinds of cases is an old thing that I learned in the days when I used to teach hostage negotiation is that when emotion goes up, reason goes down. From August 20th through the 22nd, three more cats were found killed. And the reward for information that would lead to the alleged cat killer kept going up and up by the thousands. Detective Nastonsky says that finding a skinned dog ratcheted up the fear even more. Well, and then we had a dog right around the same time. Dog that was found skinned down by the Nisqually River. And it was just, you know, the carcass of this dog was found and the the hide wasn't there. It was just this creepy, so they're like, oh my God, this cat killer has moved on to this dog. Detective Nastonsky says that she could understand the fear and the panic because pets are beloved. And we have a lot of child abuse and, and rapes and robberies and that kind of thing. But when you throw an animal into the mix, for whatever reason, people, and I'm one of them too, you know, like it hurts your heart even more than these other crimes because the animals, just like children, you know, they're helpless and they can't, uh, they can't help themselves. They can't tell you what's happening. And so when you have a crime like this that seemed to be so savage, we really needed to look into it. With all the media attention laser focused onto this case, it seemed like every day there were either new cats being found killed or the reward was going up, pet owners being interviewed, the necropsies had been determined to be the work of a human cat killer, and investigators really started to feel the pressure to solve this case, to find out who was the alleged cat killer. People are like, well, why are they doing anything? Why is nothing being done? This cat killer is going to, you know, create... Um, more animals are going to be killed, and then they're going to move on to humans. Even so, some things about this case weren't adding up. And Detective Nastonsky says she felt that it was important to take a step back, pull the emotion out of the situation, and really take a hard look. Maybe these deaths weren't the result of a cat killer after all. Because in one case, she felt absolutely certain that it was an accident. So they, this car, cat gets hit by a car. They call and say that it's in the middle of the road. Somebody calls and says, oh, we moved it to the side of the road because we didn't want people, more people running over it. So we get there. I get there as the investigator. Animal services get there as the investigators um, that they're going to take possession of this cat and take it to have a necropsy done. And I'm like, you can clearly see in the middle of the road the blood and guts from this cat being run over. Somebody picks the cat up and moves it. So what happens? the entrails get splayed out. So when the cat is found on the side of the road, when by the time we get there, it looks like it's been placed, like all of these other cats. 
so I, um, I'm taking a look at all these, the calls by the people who made these, not 911 calls, but the calls to dispatch saying what's happening with this cat. Um, the animal services comes and is like, oh no, it's, it's splayed out. And I love them all. They're great people. But I think just because of this, this hype, it was taken way beyond what it should have been. So they take this cat to have an necropsy done and the veterinarian comes back and says that it was human that did this. And so I called the veterinarian and I explained to her, like, hey, did they actually tell you this whole story that somebody found the cat in the middle of the road, somebody else picked it up and moved it, and then it was found on the side of the road? And that, no, she, the only information she had was that it was found on the side of the road, splayed out. So she changed her opinion after I told her the full story. Um, and so that made me think, like, okay, well, if she's, if she doesn't have the full information on all of these animals, then what else are we missing? Like, what is she not hearing, or what are we all not hearing and seeing? So that's when I reached out to this uh, pathologist, this veterinary pathologist out in Seattle. As Detective Nastansky reaches out to a pathologist in Seattle, outside of Olympia, looking for a fresh set of eyes. What's different this time, as opposed to the necropsies, was that Detective Nastansky is able to give the backstory of how these animals were found in each case, like the details of the cat that had been found on the side of the road. Because Detective Nastansky had been at the scene, she knew there was evidence to support that it unfortunately had been run over and was not the work of the cat killer. And remember the skin dog that I'd mentioned earlier that had been found by the side of the river? They got a tip that it wasn't a victim of the cat killer at all, but the work of a taxidermist who'd gotten lazy. It was a dog that died, and the owners of the dog paid for this dog to be, um, for the coat to be tanned so they could keep the, the hide of this dog. You know, whatever sentimental reasons these people had. So typically they would dispose of the dog. The taxidermy company would dispose of the dog. Well, they, they normally would drive it out into the middle of the woods and apparently let livestock or, you know, the coyotes and wolves and whatever eat it. Um, but this, the son is sick, so he took an easier route and just dumped it by the river. Created a lot, created a lot of hysteria as well. But they did still have evidence pointing to a human being. If you'll recall, they had scrapings from underneath Ollie's claws. Unfortunately, those came back as inconclusive for DNA, and in another of the cat killings, they'd found a surgical glove nearby. Remember the cat whose head was found on a post? And in another case, there was a glove found next to a mutilated body? They did send that glove off for DNA testing. So we did send them off, and there wasn't enough um, DNA to test for anything, Um, because we were initially thinking that maybe the gloves with the gloves that were found with a dog were similar and they ended up not being the same type of glove and there wasn't enough DNA in them to test or get any substance. So do you think that it was there just by happenstance or do you think that maybe maybe one or two there were there was a cat killer? I think there still definitely could be somebody out there who killed a few cats. I'm I'm definitely not taking that away from anybody, and I don't want anybody to come out and and say, like, oh, well, this is clearly, you know, a person. We just don't have anything to go on, and we don't have any evidence to follow the majority of the cats. So I think we had 13 or so. At least 10 of them, she was able to say that it was animal, that did this to animals, or to these cats. And the other three were 
she was like undetermined because there were so few pieces left. Like the one you said, where the cat was just found, that just the head on the post. Um, clearly, a human put the head on the post. Detective Nastonsky sympathizes with pet owners and understands why this case blew up the way that it did during that hot, smoky summer. But the reality is, as investigators, their plates are already full with cases involving human victims. I have my 30 cases of these sex offenses against children. Well, you know, if it is a cat killer and if he is going to move on to humans and he does and we don't catch him, then obviously my direction is going to go towards investigating the death of this human. And we would get the flack because it's, you know, too little, too late. We told you so kind of thing. But we didn't have anything to go on then. You know, we, there's, if there's not any trail or evidence for me to follow, I'm not really sure what people expect for us to do. So that's like, it's frustrating because I want to find it. If there's a person, of course I want to find them. And I want to give justice to these pet owners and hope that it never moves on to a human. Um, but I think we're just, we're lucky that it didn't. Um, if, if we had somebody come to, if I had somebody come to me and I, I think about this when I investigate things and I don't want to discount the way that other agencies or police officers do certain things, but if I had somebody come to me with a specific person giving me specific details like that, I absolutely 100% would have followed it. But we didn't have that. What we had was a hundred anonymous complaints of suspicious things that they've seen, people making jewelry from bones, um, A guy walking down the street tried to lure a cat and put him in a backpack. Weird stuff. We didn't have any specific people. But if we did, we obviously would have followed up on it. And we we did have a few that were suspicious, and we did interview them and talk to them. And that was, you know, that was kind of the end of it. We didn't have enough to go forward with it. More Murder Chronicles after the break. The specific person to come to her that she's talking about are people like the super sleuths who were featured in the crazy Netflix series Don't F with Cats, which came out in December of 2019, obviously well after the summer of 2018. Don't F with Cats is an award-winning series that's described as, quote, a twisted criminal's gruesome videos drive a group of amateur online sleuths to launch a risky manhunt that pulls them into a dark underworld. And spoiler alert, in that Don't F with Cats series, we find out that the cat killer would move on to killing a human being. This is something I spoke with Detective Nastonsky about. But did you see the, and I'm just going to say it because I think you can handle it, but it's like the Don't Fuck with Cats on Netflix. Yes, I did actually watch that. And what did you think? Yep. I don't know. I thought it was pretty amazing that those people put all that time and energy into it. And frankly, if we had... If we had somebody like that here that was able to do that, I would have absolutely 100% taken their help because I don't have time to do that. Right now I'm looking at my desk and I have 30 cases where I'm investigating sexual abuse against children. So obviously that's going to take a priority over a cat killer that we have proof that the majority of them were an animal. There were two more cat killings on August 28th and 30th. Once the rain came back to Seattle at summer's end, the cat killings mysteriously stopped, just before Labor Day weekend. Started roughly end of July or you know beginning of August. I was I would say it was all around a two month time period that this happened. Um, that these animals were being found, and it was so that that's why everybody thought it was like somebody who went back to school because it stopped around September. 
The 2018 serial cat killings went unsolved, despite a $53,000 reward offered to find the alleged cat killer, and a 10-person task force assigned to the case that summer. It would take six months, but eventually 10 of the cat deaths were ruled to have been caused by wild animals. Detective Dostonsky says that closing the case doesn't mean that they've closed the case. want to say, oh, well, there's not a cat killer. And then somebody decides, well, I'm going to prove her wrong and start killing cats. Like, obviously, I don't want that because it clearly could be that there is somebody out there that did a few of these for ritualistic satanic reasons, whatever it may be. I'm not saying that they didn't do it. I'm not saying 100% that it was a coyote or a raccoon every time because we do have those anomalies. Um, What I mean is that there wasn't a serial cat killer out there running around Thurston County killing all these animals. But did they stop? The following summer in 2019, there was another cat killing. A cat's head was found on a fence in Olympia next to a missing cat poster from 2018. Authorities would say that this is obviously the act of a human, not another animal. But this one-time incident wasn't anything like the kind of pattern that they'd seen the previous summer. So we can't officially rule out that there wasn't a human being killing cats in Thurston County back in 2018. In the beginning of the show, I talked about speaking to retired FBI profiler Kenneth Lanning. And what I found interesting about the case is just how the hysteria ramped up so fast. One of the common calls that we would get over time would be a police department that would call up and they would have somebody engaging in what in police terminology was commonly referred to as a nuisance sex offense. Now, the term nuisance obviously depends on who you are and what your perspective is. When it's happening to you, it may not be considered to be just nuisance. But the idea was nobody was, no human being was seriously hurt and there was no significant monetary loss. So a lot of it involved things like window peeping and indecent exposure and things like that. And also some of it involved animal cruelty and things like that. Now, Ken has written a book called Love, Bombs, and Molesters, an FBI Agent's Journey. His book is about his work with the BSU and his research involving the sexual victimization of children, satanic ritual child abuse, and confirmation bias. Ken and I talked about the cat mutilations, which are referred to as nuisance cases. So they call you and say, we have these cases of X, Y, and Z, these kind, this kind of nuisance behavior. But their ultimate question to me or to the behavioral science unit was, is this guy going to escalate? Is this guy going to progress? Or what is the likelihood that these guys who's doing some of these kind of nuisance things, it, it may also escalate to doing this to human beings? The reality is, it's impossible to know with 100% certainty how many of these types of criminals will move on to kill human beings. But when profilers are investigating these kinds of cases, a critical step is trying to figure out the motivation of the killer. Motivation is to hurt somebody, not necessarily the cat, but in this case, Mrs. Jones. And so there's many possible motivations that come around here. And a lot of times the animal is not the true intended victim. True intended victim is somebody linked to the animal. And the same thing with setting a fire. If you set a fire to some garbage that's in the trash can, that's one thing. If you burn down somebody's house that destroys their valued possessions, that's a different kind of fire setting and so on. And the same thing with bedwetting. So all of these things have to be looked at. But again, there can be many different motivations for what they're doing to these animals. But an important thing that you mentioned earlier that's very important that I learned is any kind of a case that evokes strong emotion in people, increases the odds 
that somebody is going to make a mistake and error in judgment. And so what I discovered, I recently wrote a book where I talked about this based on my experience dealing with allegations of satanic ritual abuse of children, is that people tend to believe what they want or need to believe. And you can see that's what's happened here. The detective working the case said there was a lot of pressure to solve this case. And according to retired FBI profiler Ken Lanning, Detective Nastonsky's instinct to probe deeper, despite the hysteria, is paramount in these types of investigations when confirmation bias plays such a huge role. For whatever reason, human beings wanted to believe that there was a cat killer on the loose. Kenneth Lanning says it's vital when dealing with these types of cases to listen, gather as much evidence, and talk to as many people as possible. And when you're doing that, you don't want to make a decision. You want to just get all the information and then assess it and evaluate it and consider all possibilities. Just as Detective Nastonsky had done when she believed that one of the cats most certainly had been run over and was not the work of the cat killer. But there is a high probability that there was someone out there killing cats that summer in Olympia. Not all the cats, but some. And determining the reason why this person felt the need to kill the cats, according to Ken Lanning, is vital to understanding if they will ramp up. So this animal cruelty, to me, the most dangerous kind, is always the kind where it's Mrs. Jones's cat. This is the beloved pet of this woman, this elderly woman or man, doesn't make any difference what it is. Pet is very important to them. It's almost like a family member. It's their life. And when you find somebody who's going to do something horrible to that animal and leave it displayed on her front step or something like that, very often that individual is, I would consider to be much more dangerous. I mean, you say, what's his, what's his motivation? Motivation is to hurt somebody, not necessarily the cat, but in this case, Mrs. Jones. And so there's many possible motivations that come around here. And a lot of times the animal is not the true intended victim. The true intended victim is somebody linked to the animal. The same thing with setting a fire. If you set a fire to some garbage that's in the trash can, that's one thing. If you burn down somebody's house that destroys their valued possessions and so on, that's a different kind of fire setting and so on. And the same thing with bedwetting. Now that you've heard the case, please check out the bonus episode of The Dark Triad, available right now. Here, my producer Brandon Morgan and I discuss the case and how confirmation bias played a huge role in the escalation of this investigation, and also the danger of unchecked moral panics. Both of these situations are amplified by salacious headlines that stoke fear, that danger is widespread, and puts pressure on authorities to act. So Brandon and I are going to discuss all those things and more in the bonus episode, The Dark Triad. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.